on a, uh, the faith rest drill and on different promises of scripture. And just going over the basics, we've covered Isaiah 41, <coughs> Isaiah 40 rather. Uh, we've gone to uh, uh, Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 6 and 7, and of course Romans 8.28. And we'll take the three steps of the faith rest drill again and um, show you the promise. Step two is uh, thinking about the promise, contrasting it with the uh, human viewpoint, the world system around us. And then uh, step three in the faith rest drill is we come to a conclusion that we can trust. So if, turning to uh, Romans 8.28, that we, of course, most of us know this, <clears throat> we know that uh, God causes all things to work together for good to them who love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. And this is an all-encompassing statement. It's a basic statement of God's sovereignty and his power. We know God causes all things. He is the universal cause. So in a situation where we need to walk by faith, the first step is, remember, grab the promise. And whatever promise the Holy Spirit brings to your mind, uh, fragments of scripture here and there, or whole verses or whole passages, but you grab a scripture like Romans 8.28, and instead of just sitting there and wrote, wrote, repeating it, what you have to do often in order to believe it is to sort of chew on it for a while. And in this particular case, as we've said, there's rationales behind each one of these promises. And you can think about the, of God's attributes that stand behind a promise, or you can think about his plan and so forth, uh, his uh, logistical grace that he uses to administer sustenance day by day. Uh, you can look upon his overall plan for history, and of course this year we're getting into his plan for the church age in particular. Well, in this case, suppose we grabbed hold of this promise. So that's step one. Step two, we start thinking about this promise. And we will notice in Romans 8.28 that the reason there's hope there is only because God causes all things to work together for good. That all things work together for good, not because of themselves, but it's because God works them together for good. And this is nothing more, nothing less, than the scriptural position <clears throat> that God has a pre-existing plan that he has purposes that are we as creatures and here again we get the creator creature distinction once again God pre-existing thought language and meaning creature derivative thought language and meaning and we've gone over the um, the uh, diagram which shows how uh, this works out in practical experience that uh, we can view our plans that we make and we give God the right to veto those plans because that, that yielding motion spiritually of allowing God to veto our plans is just a confession that he is sovereign. That's all it is. It's just a playing out of that belief. So we think about our plans, we take it to him, he can say yes or no. But the point is that whether he says yes or no, it means that there is a plan. And here we see the plan. Um, I guess it goes to the battery in that one. Um, and here is the scattered pieces of our particular plans or our attempts at planning. 
And so we wind up as dependent creatures. And verse 28 here is just a, a simple regurgitation of that truth, the creator-creature distinction, and that we as dependent creatures must uh, submit to his plans. And the idea here is that he has the plan. And that's why all things, not some things, not the good things, but it says all things work together for good. And that's what gives hope. doesn't stop the hurt. And still hurts, stings, and wounds hurt and take time to heal. So it's not going to stop that. But what it does do for you is that it gives you a momentum. It gives you a base. It gives you something to put your feet on while you're bleeding. Um, you're not floating in thin air. And that's what that verse does for you. That's a foundation verse. And one of the things in step two of the faith rest drill is to think about what would happen if you didn't have that promise. And again, we go back to how the universe looks uh, from a person who is an unbeliever and you have this finite, limited experience. You don't know whether there's a plan there or not. Just kidding yourself. Can't say that all things work together. How do you know that? You don't know all things. So the whole statement becomes just a nonsense statement. Or in our new age of mysticism, it can become a sort of mantra um, that we repeat to ourselves and self-hypnotize ourselves that all things work together. That's all it can do because there's no, no substance behind it. And so this situation is a hopeless situation. So the alternative to verse 8, and this is kind of how you want to think about these promises in Scripture. What is the alternative here? And to really think hard, press, press the alternative. What would you do without the promise? And then finally, after uh, looking at this, and it may take a second or it may take an hour or it may take a day, then we can trust that in the middle of the situation we are now facing, uh, we are in a situation where we can at least trust the Lord. And notice it also says, all things work together for good. And we know that if we were unbelievers and we were honest to our position, we would know that all things do not work together for good because look at, here's the pagan position. Here's the position of unbelief. Do all things work for good? No. Good and evil are always there, always there, always there. And it's not true that all things work together for good. Only in the top diagram is there an eternal, un, uh, invulnerable good. So again, the verse is grounded upon heavy theology and heavy spiritual truths. All right, uh, that's uh, uh, just a review tonight by way of introduction. And um, it's, we'll just try to go through one of these promises each, each evening to uh, review them because you never know when you, when you need them. Father, we thank you for our time tonight and we ask that your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts to the truths of the scriptures that you have uh, inscripturated through the apostles, through the prophets, and have preserved by the Holy Spirit down through the centuries of the church. You superintended the translation of this text from the Greek and Hebrew into the English language. You have guided uh, pastors and teachers down through the ages to accumulate a reservoir of mature doctrine. And we thank you for that base and that foundation for the church. We ask that we would be honest and rooted by faith in that great truth, body of truths. 
We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now tonight, I want to just begin by reviewing uh, a point that we made last time that I think from the Q&A might have uh, not gotten, I might not have gotten it clear. So we're going to go back to the introduction to this section that we're working on. <clears throat> and we're let's see if you'll turn in the New Testament to Matthew chapter 3. What we're doing here is going backwards somewhat. Last year we covered the life of Christ, his birth, his death, and his resurrection. And <clears throat> this year we're going to start uh, after Christ rose from the dead. But in order to pick up uh, the situation in history that was left by the Lord Jesus Christ before he left earth, uh, we want to go back in time. And that's what we tried to do last time and introduce the concept that the Lord Jesus Christ, early in his career, made an offer. And he offered to be the king. And if Israel would accept him as being king, they would have their kingdom. And in, I want to show you why the cross works out of the rejection and rebellion of him being king. And we said that here is where uh, there's a break in theology and why people who tend to be in the Reformed theological camp get very antsy when they hear somebody like me talking this way. They get antsy because in their eyes, Christ came to die, period. That was his whole mission, to come and give atonement. With that, we don't quarrel. What we're saying, however, is that it wasn't a straight line to the cross. He arrived at the cross as a result of cause-effect, 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 cause-effect back. And part of the cause-effect was that he was rejected by the, by the nation. And it was that rejection that propelled him to the cross. And for some strange reason, this comes across as an odd idea, but if you think of history, you think of the fact that you can start out with a creation. God offered a sinless environment to man. Did he not? What did man do with it? He trashed it. So we have the fall. Now, had man not trashed the environment, and had he not rebelled, would Christ have had to have died? So you see that the setup for the crucifixion worked out of a genuine situation in Eden. And then you can go on down, and we did it for several, several things, you can go on down to the flood. And you get to the flood and Noah has an ark of a finite size. Suppose when Noah preached, everybody believed. Would the ark then have become necessary? Well, not really, but then God was going to send a flood, so you needed an ark. So what do you do? Everybody builds their own ark, maybe thousands of arks. Um, it, it's a speculation, but the point I'm showing you is, is that at every one of these historical junctures, there's a pattern that you want to see. And it's that pattern that occurs in the Gospels. So what occurs in the Gospels isn't new, it's just a, a repeat of the same sort of thing. God presents a positive option to the human race, and the human race always rebels against it. And as a result of the rebellion against his positive offer, we move to the next step in the plan. Now granted, from all eternity, God set this up to get there, to the cross. That's granted. Yes, he does. 
but it's by means of these things, these events. So let's watch how it works out in the Gospels very quickly. Turn to Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Here's where the Gospels begin. And they don't begin with Jesus. All four Gospels begin with John. Why do the Gospels begin with John? Well, those of you who remember, when we went back several years back, in the Old Testament history, who chose the kings? Did the kings come upon the scene and anoint themselves? No. There were kingmakers. Now, we, in our American political system, sort of, you know, we use the word kingmakers to refer to the smoke-filled room where the deals are made. But I'm using the word kingmaker in the sense of the Old Testament. The prophets were the kingmakers. Who ordained the kings? It was the prophets. And how did they ordain the king? Remember the picture, Samuel? What did he do to David? He anointed him, and there was oil. That's the anointing. That's Masach. That's from the word Messiah. What does the word Messiah mean? The word Messiah means the anointed one. Who is the anointed one? The one the prophet has chosen to be king. So that's the background. So now comes the prophet, the kingmaker, and in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, look what he says. That's the message. The message isn't believe on Christ, for is he going to atone for your sins? Now, it's true that John the Baptist knew that the Messiah would suffer. He knew that out of the Old Testament. And it was an inkling that somehow the Messiah would die. That's true. But there's an offer being made here to the nation. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. It's at hand. doesn't mean it's come. It means it is at the door, so to speak. It's near here. Now, why should the nation repent? What does it mean to repent? It means to change their whole reference system because Israel was operating on a... Uh, this is their program. The program was a bunch of religious works that dominated the culture. God has to... It's the old balance system. That God's going to judge. I know He's going to judge. But see, He has scales here. And if my good works outweigh my bad works, uh, the scale tips in that direction, then He's got to forgive me and I'm going to be happy. Boy. That's works. That's a system of works. Problem is, the scales never tip that way. And furthermore, this represents an arbitrary forgiveness. If God is a holy God, how does He get rid of bad? There's got to be a blood atonement, as we've learned in the Old Testament. So John the Baptist knew all that. But nevertheless, he went ahead and he preached this message. And the message was to the house of Israel to change their attitude, challenging them on the basis of Scripture to look and prepare themselves for the kingdom. Now, you notice that he doesn't, in verse 2, define what this kingdom is. And that's critical to understand about the, Old Test of the New Testament. The New Testament never stops to define the content of the kingdom, which means one thing. It means the kingdom must have been known. Where did they find out the content to the word kingdom from? Old Testament. And what did they read in the Old Testament? Well, going back to Old Testament history, remember, we take the framework again and work our way back to the, when they had a kingdom. David was king, and then Solomon was king, and then the whole thing cratered. Just remember the steps in history. The golden era of Solomon, what happened? The kingdom was divided. The kingdom was in decline. And what happened in 586? Exile. Why did this happen? Because the nation turned away from God. The kings were corrupt 
and the people were corrupt. You know, it, it, it's too bad the ACLU has everybody so frightened to mention Scripture. This can be taught in any classroom as straight-out history. And if you look, and people would understand this, here is one of the most eloquent comments on social organization, political and sociological theory. Here you had, if there ever was an opportunity for a divine, blessed culture on this planet, it was Israel. And what happened? It fell apart. So what does that tell you about the uh, hope for a political system? It's no better than the people that run it. And both leaders and people sinned and were chastened. The king disciplined his kingdom. But notice in the progress here, from the golden era of Solomon, the kingdom divide, the kingdom's in decline, right around the golden era of Solomon, and as the kingdom was declining, there arose among the prophets a vision. And a vision was a, a development out of the thoughts of David himself. David himself knew he was a sinner. David himself sinned grossly enough to be fully aware that he was not, even though he was the Messiah, the Messiah in the sense he was anointed, little a, little m, little Messiah, he was anointed as a human king. He knew from his own historical experience that he couldn't be the ideal king. And so, we're going to see a psalm tonight. It's very important. One, and then in the notes that we just got handed out, you'll see two more psalms. And these psalms that we're going to enter tonight all originate with David. Way back here. Golden era of Solomon. Right just before that. And David foresaw this whole time of discipline and he looked beyond the discipline to an ideal king. Now, if David knew that he wasn't the ideal king and he couldn't be the ideal king because of his sin, did he think his Solomon was going to be any better than him? No, he knew that. Did he think that Solomon's son would be any better than him, Rehoboam, grandson? No. Well, then who is this mysterious greater king than David? Well, we know it's going to be the Messiah. So, the, 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 thinking, the thinking here from the golden era of Solomon through the kingdom of division through the kingdoms of decline all the way to the exile who was writing who was preaching who was teaching all during this period of time men like Isaiah Jeremiah Elisha what was their message their message was that God's program that he had promised through Abraham was going to come to pass but they faced a problem because God is righteous and holy how can it come to pass with this mess with man's depravity, how can the kingdom come about? The kingdom can only come about if you have a people that will be righteous and leadership that will be righteous. Now, it's into that environment that this verse in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, comes. It's an address to the whole country. Because remember, where is he ministering? It says in verse 1, he's ministering in the wilderness of Judea. And I'm sorry that I don't have a way of projecting photographs of what this area looked like, including the maps of the area. Someday I'm going to put my slides on diskette and then have a projector that will work. But I'm going to try to describe for you the terrain here because it enters into the event of the ascension of Christ. 
you can imagine the, uh, the, the area, uh, if you have a Bible map, you'll see the Sea of Galilee is up here, the Dead Sea is down here. And the Jordan River runs like so. There's mountains here. This is a, a chain of, not really mountains, mountains like the west, but more hills, big hills that run along this area. And then this is mountainous over here. So this is like a valley. Okay, so you want to picture that. Jerusalem is up here in, in the highlands. The wilderness of Judea is on the leeward side of these hills. And it's a wilderness. It's very dry. It's out here. The Dead Sea Scrolls, there's the caves of the Dead Sea Scrolls. So it's, it's somewhere out in here is where John the Baptist is ministering. But it's, Jericho is right here, and it's a main, main drag uh, of, of transportation. So even though it's the wilderness, people would come out to the wilderness, especially to hear him. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he says. But this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet. When did Isaiah write? He wrote back during the decline of the kingdom. And what was Isaiah prophesying about? The kingdom. The ideal kingdom that would surely come. So when you see the quote in verse 3, that tells you that John the Baptist is communicating what any Jew of his day would have understood from Isaiah. What did Isaiah talk about? He talked about the whole regenerate cosmos. He talked about Jerusalem being the everlasting temple. He talked about make straight the crooked paths. And that's not just figurative. They looked forward to a, a rebirth of nature. They, what did Isaiah prophesy about the military? He prophesied, beat your swords into plowshares. Uh, it was interesting. Today I was over in the, the headquarters of the Development Testing Command and I was looking at some, I always like to look when I get over there at the cases, and I was looking at the plaques that were given to that particular command. And uh, there was this plaque quoting Isaiah too. And I thought, wow. I, I wonder who did that. It sounds like some pacifist organization, because that's what usually happens. They shall beat their swords in the plowshares. And then I looked, and it, was, it wasn't the King James translation. It was another English translation. I said, gee, you know, I've never seen that translation before. And then I came down the bottom, and there was the Yashu. And I knew immediately it was a Jewish translation. And then I looked at the fine print. Well, who, who gave that Jewish a, a plaque, a Bible verse, right smack in this awards where all these military plaques are, Here's a quote from Isaiah, and who did it? The chief of the IDF. Well, the IDF is the Army of Israel. And apparently in the, some years in the past, uh, the, the chief general of the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, uh, gave that to the Aberdeen Proving Ground, which I thought was kind of interesting. But this, this was the wilderness and the kingdom idea was that of Isaiah. So it wasn't necessary for Jesus and John to go into great iteration about what was the kingdom. Everybody knew what the kingdom was. This is not the, uh, a new political party coming in here. This is talking about a major event in world history. The long-anticipated culmination of Israel's reason for existence. That's what's meant here. Repent, for that kingdom is at hand. The last hour of history is near here. So, when you, when you don't read this lightly, verse 2 is not a light verse. It's a very heavy verse, 
when you understand what kingdom means here. And that's why John himself, in verse 4, had a garment of camel's hair, leather belt. He was a, he was a, a weird guy that, uh, in his personality, resembled Elisha a lot. And then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. See, they were coming out on this road. Here's Jerusalem. Here's Jericho. And Samaria is up here. And there was, a, there was a traffic jam down the road to go hear this guy. And, and it was it's constant because the, the Greek in verse 5 is a picture of these people going and coming. This wasn't a Saturday night revival meeting or something. This went on for an extended period of time. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. So see, he's out here in the wilderness and what's over here? Jordan River. And they were being baptized. But when he saw the Pharisees and Sadducees, now this guy really learned how to preach from one of the modern seminaries that teach you, you know, do everything gently, shake hands, and uh, smile at everybody, pat everybody on the head. This is the way you get more people to come to church. Well, verse 7 shows you he didn't care who came to church. The issue was, are you going to repent or not? And if you're not, I don't want to see you. Period. So, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said, you brood of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, why do you suppose he used the word, the wrath to come, in accompaniment to the kingdom? What wrath is it that's coming? It's the wrath that we associate with the second advent of Christ. And what I want you to see is that the first and second advents of Christ are tied together inseparably mixed at this point. When we're Monday morning quarterbacking, and we go, oh yeah, well now I know they were too. Yeah, after the game you know that. But these people were in the game. And the first and second advents of Christ were collapsed together in their consciousness. Couldn't have the kingdom without the wrath of God, could you? What would clear the air to get the kingdom possible? It goes back to that graph, you know, about good and evil have to be separated. So, all that had to come with a kingdom. And so, verse 7, he gets really hot. When he sees these people, he knows they're not believers. They're just going through a lot of religious motion and gimmicks. And he says, I'm not interested in you people around here. Get out of here. This probably wouldn't make him possible. So, right here, what happens to the ministry? Right from the start of the Gospels, if this guy's the king-making prophet who ordains the Messiah, he's already offended the power structure. So right from the start of the Gospels, you have a collision of God's spokesmen over against the culture of the time. And in verse 8, he goes on, and he says, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. You say you have believed, then bring forth evidence. And don't suppose you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. And see, that's a little prophetic because God has raised up children of Abraham in the spiritually, hasn't he, in the church age. We don't have Jewish genes, but through Christ we become adopted sons. Well, he goes on. In verse 10, notice the judgment theme. See, people always think of the kingdom of God as some gooey, little positive, great... And it is. It's wonderful. It's world peace. Come. But look at the context. If you, if you imagine yourself, 
going out there with a box lunch and a, and a uh, thermos jug and walking down this road to get out there to hear this guy and he's kind of eccentric to start with and then you hear this stuff but as a good Jew you know what he's talking about you know that he's talking about the last moment of history and he says the axe is already laid at the root of the trees every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire as for me I baptize you with water for repentance but he was coming after me See, there's the prophet and his subsequent king that the prophet king makes. I, mightier than I, I'm not fit to remove his He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Baptism of fire is the second advent of Christ and the destruction of evil. So, you see that you have this coalescence of the first and advent it's clear that he's talking about judgment here and he's basically telling them get ready because it's coming and it's right here at the door it's the word is his near now if you turn to Matthew 4 verse um, 17 notice what Jesus does what is his first message his message is, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So again, the same message, the prophet and his king made, his, the king that he makes, as a pair, these two men have the same gospel, the same message to the same people over the same issue. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's not the message of Isaiah. That's not the message in the Old Testament. This is a message of urgency at the end of Israel's history. This is the imminent of the end here. That's how close it came. God could have ended history, right? Right in the, in the era of Jesus Christ. But it didn't work out that way. And so we could go on through to... Uh, let's turn to chapter 10 of Matthew. Later on in Jesus' ministry, we... Verse 5, his instructions, now, now he's starting to get pick up heavy resistance here. And this is the time he sent out his disciples and they would confirm that the nation will reject Christ. Because remember when the guys come home from the mission, they come home and, they, and Jesus brings up in Matthew chapter 12 the blasphemy, whosoever sin against me, that's fine, but don't you say, don't you lie against the Holy Spirit, because that's an unpardonable sin. Remember all that? That all came about at this point in his ministry. So we're halfway through Jesus' ministry here, and he's commissioning the disciples. And he says in verse 5, Do not go into the Gentiles. Do not go to the Samaritans. Is this the same way as Matthew 28? What's in Matthew 28? Where does he tell the disciples in Matthew 28? Go into all the world. Something changed? You bet. And that's what we're dealing with, folks. There's a different gospel in the gospels. And at the end of the gospels, when it's all said and done and Christ's finished work is there and he's risen from the dead, now all of a sudden the cha rules change. Now we're doing something different. What is going on in Matthew 28 is not what's going on in Matthew chapter 10. So here he says, I don't want you to go to the nations. I don't want you to go to Gentiles. I don't want you to go to the Samaritans. Verse 6, I want you to concentrate your ministry on the house of Israel. This is a Jewish issue. Now, let's think a minute. 
Why is it a Jewish issue? Whether history ends or not. Still is, by the way. You know what the impediment is to Jesus' return? What did he say on Palm Sunday as he rode through Jerusalem? And then as the people rejected, he says, You will not see me until you say again, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So until Israel welcomes the Messiah, he will not return. And so in this case, in Matthew chapter 10, he's sending him out to the... There's a Jewish issue here. You see, see, Israel is a cornerstone of history. Israel is the priestly nation of God. And when it's not functioning right, the whole world doesn't function right. And that's why in Romans, what does Paul say? If the casting aside of Israel be salvation... In other words, Christ died. They rejected him, he died, and then God moved his plan over to the church. He says, what do you suppose, if that was true, what do you suppose is going to happen when Israel gets it straight? Now you're going to see the blessing of the world, and that's the millennial kingdom. But right here in Matthew 10, as you go saying, what are they saying? In verse 7. Again, what's the message? It was the message of John. It was the message of Jesus. And it's the message of his disciples. And to whom? To the Gentiles? Is this the gospel we know? This is a, is a gospel that was projected during the time of Jesus' ministry to the house of Israel exclusively. A special gospel, a special announcement that the kingdom was right at their door. Go ahead, he says, heal the sick. Raise the dead, but don't acquire gold or silver for your money belts, and so forth. And then he goes on, and he threatens them in verse 15. He says, I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for the city that rejects your message in this gospel. It's, a, it's an ominous thing here. See the fierceness of the gospel message in Jesus' time. All right, let's go on finally to... Uh, Matthew 11:14. Now here's a strange thing. Turn to Matthew 11:14 with one hand, and with your other hand, turn over to Matthew 17, verse 11. Here is one of the dilemmas of the Gospels. So flip between Matthew 11:14 and chapter 17, uh, verse 11. In Matthew 11:14, notice what is said. This is where John, remember, he was in prison and he was kind of doubting things. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, among those that are born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And then in verse 14 he says, And if you care to accept it being italicized, you have to supply the object of the verb, and if you accept, and what it is, is the gospel message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you will accept this gospel, then John is Elijah. And the prophecy has been fulfilled in John the Baptist. So there is a kinship between the spirit of Elisha and the spirit of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, in other words, is looked upon as a contingent Elijah. Now, this is heavy stuff. This is not easy to understand what's going on here. But he's saying that if you accept it and the kingdom comes, 
if the kingdom comes in that day, what was the Old Testament prophecy? That Elisha would come and then there would be the millennial kingdom. So if the kingdom is going to come in Jesus' day, you've got to have Elisha there. Well, who's the Elisha? He says, if you accept it, John is the Elisha. But they don't accept it. And so in Matthew chapter 17... Verse 11, his disciples saying, Why then do the scribes say Elijah must come first? And Jesus said, Elijah is coming and he will restore all things. But I say to you, Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So shall be the Son of Man to suffer at their hands. And the idea is, he's, he's saying that Elijah is, is coming, but he's already come. Now that's what I'm talking about. That's what I mean when I'm saying the Gospels are strange. It's, it's this contingency. God offers the kingdom. He offers John the Baptist. John the Baptist could have been Elisha. But the nation, in rejection and rebellion, turns away. And so we have this negative volition toward the Lord Jesus Christ that sets up the cross. Now, that's leaves, if we, if we diagram it this way, uh, the one and two, the first and second advent, now, after Christ has died and rose, and we, we studied all that last year, now look what happens. Now we've got the first advent and the second advent split apart, so we can see they're two different events. But in splitting them apart, now we've got an age in between. We have an inter-advent age that is caused by the rebellion of Israel and because they wouldn't accept them, the kingdom is postponed, it's still waiting, still there, still waiting, but it hasn't come yet. And now we introduce the mystery, and here's the situation, this inter-advent age, what is going on in this inter-advent age? That's the dilemma that we're studying here. So the first event that we're studying in this inter-advent age is the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the Gospel of John, John, being the uh, later Gospel, John can remember, after the fact, of course, he can remember, oh, yeah, you know, when I think back of what the Lord said, I can remember now, he hinted, at this inter-advent age. So let's go back and look at some of those texts. Turn to John chapter 6, verse 62. John, by the way, of all the four Gospels, emphasizes this the most. Because again, John wrote in a different vein than the other Gospel writers, and he has a different slant on things, because he's trying to show from Jesus and what Jesus taught, he's looking at the whole thing now uh, on the deep inside the church age. And in John chapter 6, verse 62, we read, you know, let's look at 61. Jesus, conscious his disciples, grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if I should tell you, behold, the Son of Man ascending where he was before? Now, can you imagine that? statement. Let's just read that slowly. What is implied in that statement? 
what then would you do if you saw the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now, does anybody remember from last year when we studied the Lord Jesus Christ, where does that expression Son of Man show up in the Old Testament most graphically? Remember the passage of Scripture? That's not a, a create. Jesus didn't make that title up, by the way. He, he got that out of the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7. One of the magnificent heavenly visions, which we'll, we'll study as we go, get deeper into this. But it's an Old Testament expression for the fact that the human race, represented in the person of Jesus Christ as the second Adam, will attain the created destiny that it was intended to do. That is, act as God's vice regents. They will subdue all things. So, what he says is the Son of Man, that's himself, in that role, is going to ascend to where he was before he came here, which shows his pre-existence. So, before Jesus was incarnated and virgin-born, in his deity... This is a claim to deity, clearly here. Th that he was at the Father's right hand, he was born, and he's going to ascend back to where he was before. All right, let's uh, turn to John 16, verse 28. This is in the upper room when he's discussing in the last hours of his ministry. And John remembers now, as he recalls through the work of the Holy Spirit on his mind, that Jesus, yeah, he really did say those things. And so he says in verse 28, I came forth from the Father, I have come into the world, I am leaving the world, and I'm going back to the Father. So quite clearly, Jesus is indicating in advance of the event that he's going to ascend into heaven. Remember now, our object is we're talking about the ascension. This is our first ascension and session. This is our first event this year that we're going to look at. The ascension and session of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll bet you never heard a sermon on that in the last ten years of your life. The ascension and session of the Lord Jesus. In this same chapter of John, up a few verses, go back to verse 7. Now he's telling his disciples that he's going to go away. But then he says, and, and of course we've all heard, heard about this, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper shall not come or the comforter shall not come to you. But if I go, who sends the Holy Spirit, by the way? I send the Spirit. I want to pause here. There's something that's not in the notes. But I want to give you a little sub-page of church history about this one, this one clause. I will send him. Do you realize that the eastern and western halves of Christianity split over this truth? The Greek Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church divided, oh, and, and due to a lot of other reasons, but one of the divisions that remains to this day is the so-called Philoque Clause. And that's in Latin term meaning, and the Son. 
And it's that section in the creeds that reads, and I believe, you know, Pontius Pilate, and it's going to go through the whole creed, and it says, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, who, uh, who was sent from the Father and the Son, and so on, and who with the Father and the Son is glorified, and so forth, so on. It puts the Son in with the Father as sending the Spirit. Well, you go in the eastern half of Christendom, and that's not true. Don't believe that Jesus sent the Spirit. The Spirit was sent by the Father. Now, this sounds like a little tweaky little theologian thing here. It isn't. Historically, this has had devastating effects. Historically, what happened is that wherever the Philoquay Clause was not actively pursued, the full deity and authority of the risen Lord Jesus Christ was denied. And that is why eastern half of Christendom, to this day, is dominated by a mentality of totalitarianism. This is why today, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, you could have forecast it without looking at the newspaper, that the Russian people, as one example, because the Russian Orthodox Church is, is in the same group as the Greek Orthodox Church, you could have laid your last dollar on the fact that these people are going to have an awful time and probably will never make it as far as a participatory government. Because for centuries, upon centuries, upon centuries, the old Russian families from grandfather all the way back to great-grandfather to great-great-grandfather to great-great-grandfather have said the czar is necessary. There has to be a strong authority on earth to keep the peace and to hold everything together. But why do they need a strong Caesar? That's what czar is. It's a word for Caesar. Why do they have such a strong idea of Caesar? Because they got a weak idea of Christ. And if Christ decreases, Caesar increases. This is the equation. In the West, you had a strong Christ. And yes, you had Caesars. But what happened to the Roman Empire? It collapsed. And who dominated Europe in place of the Roman Empire? The Catholic Church. You see, it was a difference because they were not substituting a political entity and structure for the Lord Jesus. So that's just a little sidelight and extra, extra insight here. In, in verse 7, when the Lord Jesus Christ ascends to heaven, on. Sends the third person of the Trinity. It must be that he's a pretty big boy. And that's the whole point. If Jesus sends the Spirit, then Jesus has absolute, total, divine authority right where he is, right now, at the Father's right hand, as God-man. It is the full authority of Jesus Christ behind these verses. And that's why this ascension is so, so important. And notice in verse 11, there's that theme of judgment again. He says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to convict the world of three things. And this, by the way, shows you what a good gospel presentation is and what a good gospel presentation isn't. The first sin that the Holy Spirit is going to convince people of is that they do not believe in Jesus Christ. Notice it doesn't say all the little sins and moral sins and do it. That's true. Those are sins. We're not making light of that. But those sins, you can sit there and make those an issue and never get to the person of Christ. 
So the sin central to the Holy Spirit's ministry is the sin of the rejection and disbelief in Jesus Christ. The gospel presentation that is thorough, loyal, and accurate to the Scriptures will emphasize the person of Jesus Christ. And concerning righteousness. In other words, the righteousness is not man's righteousness. It's righteousness that Christ secures. I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. And his admission ticket, how could Jesus in his humanity go to the Father? Because he was perfectly righteous. So the second point of a good gospel presentation, it emphasizes that the righteous key that unlocks the door to the presence of God doesn't come from the human heart. It comes from the righteousness of Jesus Christ emanating not from the human heart on earth, but from the Father's right hand. The righteousness that saves you and me is located at the Father's right hand. It's not located here. Protestant gospel, justification by faith in Jesus Christ. Catholic gospel, it is the righteousness in my heart brought there by the Holy Spirit in faith that is the basis of my relationship with God. Now, it can't be both, folks. Either the Catholics are right or the Protestants are right. And this gospel says that it's the righteousness of Jesus, of Jesus Christ. That's the locus of the righteousness, not the human heart. And the third thing, which is interesting, is that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of judgment because the ruler has been judged. Notice past tense. Satan has had it. When Jesus Christ rose and sat at the Father's right hand, as we will study and go into this in much more depth, Jesus Christ now outranks Satan on the hierarchy of rank and command structure. The keys of heaven have been given and delivered to Jesus Christ. Who had them, by the way, during the temptations of Jesus? Who offered to give the kingdoms to him? Satan. What did Jesus say? Oh, you don't really have the authority? No, he did not. Because Satan was the god of this world who had that authority. And now Jesus Christ has that authority and he's resting it away. And this introduces the whole idea of why the church is not Israel. The church is doing something very significant in history that Israel never did, couldn't do, and will not do. Israel is God's earthly people with an earthly purpose, and the church is God's heavenly people with a power and a mission to perform in the unseen realm of the angelic beings. There's a spiritual war going on, and the church is in the middle of it, and it's there by divine design. The church is doing something all down this time to prepare for that kingdom that's going to come. And it starts with the ascension and session of Christ. But when Jesus Christ walked into the Father's presence, and when he sat down at the Father's right hand, and the, and the scriptures tell us what happened, Jesus came to the Father, and the Father said, you are now eligible to sit at my right hand in his humanity. Sit. And so Jesus Christ now reigns far above all principality and power. And therefore, of all creatures, he has first rank. He has more stars on his shoulder than any angelic being. And this is extremely important because the church is in union with that resurrected, ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, now we're going to come over to the ascension itself. 
And we're going to start in the remaining time tonight looking at the locus of this because I want you to see this is a physical event that happened outside the city of Jerusalem just as physically real as the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is an amazing event, and to show you the interesting thing, and I, as again, I wish I had a map of, of the ancient city of Jerusalem to show you this, but if, if we were to go to Jerusalem tonight, we would, besides wearing bulletproof vests, um, this is the, um, the, the, the valley that kind of separates, now this is not the Jordan River, this is the valley that you have the city of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount over here on the west, you have this Kidron Valley running down like this, and over here you have a hill. And the hill has olive groves on it. That is uh, the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. That's where the Garden of Gethsemane was. Then there are ancient olive trees still growing there, centuries old, not from the time of Christ probably. Okay, so here's Jerusalem goes further down and the Kidron Valley opens up. Now, if you take a road, a road goes down, I have, I've forgotten how it exactly goes, but I walked that, so I, I remember it being very short. You walk across this valley, and the road curves around this hill. And this is it's like a hill here. And the, you take this thing around the hill, and you know what's right over here? And this, this isn't more than a quarter mile. And you get around the other side of the hill, that's Bethany. Now you can understand why he always uh, spent nights at, at the house there in Bethany. Because if he was ministering in Jerusalem, it was just a short walk around the backside of the hill. And it was kind of nice because it kept you out of the city. Nice hill, gardens. Uh, it separated you from all the, all the hoopla of the city. So today, this is the Jewish quarter over here, and this is the Arab quarter over here, and this is the Arab quarter over here, and you've got to go through all kinds of things to get there. But it's a short area. Now, where do you suppose Jesus rose into heaven? Where was his ascent pad? Right here. That's the hill. So it's right nearby Jerusalem. It's right between Jerusalem and Bethany. And it's only, uh, you know, thousands of feet away from the temple. You see what a small thing is? If you go there sometime, what blows you away is you read about all these biblical events... And for crying out loud, they could all fit inside Bel Air. And you think, geez, I mean, why, you know, why is it so small? It's really, it's, it's interesting that it just strikes you. You expect this majestic thing, and it's just a small thing. It's a small area. Well, we want to look at some of those details. So turn to Mark chapter 16. Those of you who are interested, by the way, in going to Israel, in 2004 and in 2002, every other year he does this, uh, Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, who is a Hebrew Christian, has the finest tour of Israel you could ever get with. Um, it's a long one and it's a grueling one. Um, it's five weeks long. Before you go there, he requires you to take and a course in his book on Israel, John. Every day is spent with a lecture and then visit. When I went there in 1976, we spent five weeks. We must have seen over 220 biblical sites. I mean, we were hustling every single day. There was no rest except on the Sabbath. Um, 
And but the the beauty of it is it's not tourist. It's not some little tourist thing going to all the little trinket shops. And this is actually going out into these hills and lowlands and tracing out, you know, what happened here. Here's the tell. You know, you go to the place where Elijah killed all the prophets. There's the hill. Now you can see down the valley of Medigo. Get your camera and take a picture. And. It's amazing to get there, and then it makes the Bible so much more real. And I just remember all that from 20, 30, 25 years ago, walking around that hill and thinking to myself, you know, Jesus rose, from the, rose into heaven, and this is just a hill. You know, I expected to see Mount Everest or something. And here's this, this little dingy hill. Well, here's where Mark 16, verse 19, picks it up. The Lord Jesus on that hill, right just east of the walls, and when he had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere. Very abbreviated in the Gospel of Mark. See? Very, and notice it's described in passive terms. Now let's turn to the next Gospel, Luke. Luke 24:50, and see what Luke adds to that scene. By adding, by the way, I do not mean he made it up. I mean that he included it more details in his writings. We're not looking at the New Testament as a result of some church spin doctors. Luke 24, 50 and 51. We'll look at this and another passage and then we'll be finished for the night. I just want to introduce when this ascension occurred and what they saw. Here's eyewitness. Luke 24, 50. When he led them out as far as Bethany. And what did I say about Bethany? What did I say was around the other side of the hill? He, laid, he walked around this hill, probably on that same road. Hasn't changed. The roads don't change. Right in the hill. And then he must have walked up here because tradition says that's some amount of a sense. So he walked over to Bethany and walked up the side of that hill. And then it says... Um, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And it came about that while he was blessing them, he parted from them. And it just leaves you like, what did he just disappear? What happened here? I mean, something profound happened here. All those resurrection appearances cease after the ascension of Christ. He never appears again like he did before. He appears in visions, but he doesn't appear in, in, like those resurrection scenes. All right, one last text, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Luke again. Now you get even more information. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8... Let's start with verse 8 because that's what we're most familiar with. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and so forth. We all read that. And then in verse 9, after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. So he didn't disappear on the hill. These guys are looking at him. They're both standing on the hill and it's like he's lifted up. So he's in a bodily, physical ascent mode. He's, he's, he's lifting off. That's the picture we're getting from this. Really, really weird. He, he lifted up while they were going on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. 
so he, he goes into a fog bank or low stratus type cloud and he's gone and of course the cloud is a special cloud because the cloud is the presence of the Lord but the interesting thing that Luke in this passage says something else happened while these guys are looking up and by the way, in verse 10, the, there's an intensity here. Now these guys, their jaws have probably dropped right about here. I mean, have you ever seen somebody go up like that? I mean, they've never seen this before. They're sitting there with their mouths open. And they're gazing up because it tells you that if they're gazing up, he's, he's got some altitude to him. There. As they, he gazed intently into the sky while he was departing, Notice departing is a present tense. So the idea is he's rising slowly and they're watching him rise up into the clouds. It took some time. We don't know whether it took one minute, five minutes, ten minutes, or what, however long it did. But there's a process here of him rising off. And behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up in the sky? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven... He's going to come just the same way you watched him go into heaven. And I want to conclude tonight with that last statement. He's going to come again like he went. Now, did he go physically? Yeah. What does this mean? He's going to come again physically. Did he go up? Yes. Well, then he's going to come down. Is he going to come in his body like he was known? Yeah. Is he going to come to planet Earth? Yes. Not Mars or Venus? No. Earth. And where do you suppose on Earth he's going to come? To Palestine, to Israel. And so the angelic confirmation is that just as Jesus Christ lifted off, he's going to return this way. And why people who read this text come up with a goofy idea. Oh, Jesus already come. Don't you know that was the 70 AD? Or, Jesus already come. That was the Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. Nonsense. Jesus Christ hasn't come again. You know, where's the video? He has never come again like this. So, this, this whole depiction, that's why I want to spend time on it tonight, is here is a physical event as physically real as the cross was. And yet, rarely do we ever think about this in our own spiritual life and so on. We don't want to get spooky and talk about the Holy Spirit. But let's think about it. One of the implications we're going to see as we study this further is the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ, in His physical body, exists tonight in his physical body at a point someplace. You realize that? He exists someplace. And he has fingers and arms and legs and toes and clothes. He's that real. And he exists someplace. And the place that he exists, the Bible says, is at the right hand of the Father. Now if we know the one who is at the Father's right hand and the Father is the creator of the universe and he runs other galaxies like this one, at the helm of the universe, isn't some creature out of Star Wars, at the helm of the universe is a member of the human race. Another confirmation point that it is the human race by divine creation, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, 
And Jesus fulfills the Genesis 1 mandate. He's doing it tonight at their father's right hand. It's not a Martian there. It's a human there. It's not an angel there. It's a human there. The son of Adam rules the universe. Amazing truth. And we want to push this truth in the ensuing three or four weeks we're going to study the ascension and session because that's the basis for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we mustn't just think of the coming of the Spirit as some spiritual goo. There's a physical thing here, the source and the, and the instigation of the coming of the Spirit. Father, we thank you for our time tonight. We thank you for this witness that we have in the Scriptures to this awesome event of the ascent of Jesus Christ, the most, one, the most unique thing that ever happened in history. No man has ever ascended into heaven and to sit at your right hand. Buddha hasn't, Confucius hasn't, Muhammad hasn't. It's only the Lord Jesus Christ, the genuine Christ, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, in whose name we give thanks. Amen. I'll try to remember to um, repeat the questions because people who listen to the tapes always say, well, gee, I didn't hear the question. What question were you answering when you said that? So then they have, to, they have to start to go backwards and try to infer the question from what I was talking about, which usually sometimes isn't related to the question. Um, so, go, so go ahead if you have any questions that you'd like to throw out on the table tonight. Yes, Mike. This is our seminary, uh, new seminarian, by the way. Well, uh, the, uh, yeah, I think this is a good question about a clear gospel presentation. And I, um, in September Labor Day, I gave a, a conference in Connecticut on uh, the really Paul's prelude to a clear gospel presentation, which is Acts 17. And I think before we even get to the gospel, we need to remember we've got to connect with people out there. Um, and the problem is that people out there, folks, uh, in, in the modern world, uh, it's like they're living on another planet. And you can use the same words, and you think you're communicating, and it, you might as well just talk to the air. And in Acts 17, the sobering lesson there, it's a very sobering lesson, because here you have the greatest mind, probably, in church history, which is Paul. And he, you can see him struggling in Acts 17, to clarify the meaning of two words. Two words. Jesus and resurrection. And so he spends, these people, they hear him talking, they think they're gods. I mean, they've totally pagan. You know, he's using the words Jesus and resurrection. That's the transmitter. And this is the receiver. Ah, oh, that must be two gods. I mean, they're completely way out in the toolies here and understand. They're not ready for a gospel presentation at that point. So the first thing about a clear gospel presentation, you can't make a clear gospel presentation if you don't have a clear vocabulary. And I, folks, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a, I don't have to get to evangelism. Now, some people have a marvelous gift to evangelism. But I know one thing, that in my experience, if you don't have available to your mind and heart a memory of illustrations, 
of what you mean when you speak a word. It becomes an abstract. And that's why Paul, if you remember, in Acts 17, he goes through, he talks about creation. He talks about God made this, God did this, God said this, God history was thus and such, and so on. And you think, for crying out loud, when is he ever going to get to the gospel? And I can hear a lot of people in our own churches getting impatient with Paul because he never gets to the gospel. Well, he can't get to the gospel until he's in tune with these folks. And so that's why I hope, as we've gone through this cycle of these events, remember what events show what. So, for example, I mean, last night I was involved in a telephone conversation with a gentleman who um, really is miles apart from a scriptural understanding. And um, we were talking overseas. I mean, it's a transatlantic phone call. And we had to deal with this issue of revelation because fundamentally uh, this individual has uh, the, the idea that God never has spoken in history but he's a Christian who follows the leading of the Holy Spirit and the problem here is is what is revelation so I was, thought to myself okay what's in the framework what event most clearly illustrates biblical revelation. Remember? Sequence of charts? Mount Sinai. Exactly. So when I, when I mention Mount Sinai as God speaking such that if you had a tape recorder, you could have taped it in Hebrew. No, 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 no. Ah, good. Now we know where the, where the conversation is going to go. Now we've identified what the problem is here. The reason we have problems with miracles, we have problems with this, we got problems with that. I mean, you know, Jesus didn't raise Lazarus from the de dead. He just Lazarus wasn't dead, so he just walked out of the thing when the door was open, um, and that was a miracle because the people thought it was a miracle. Um, this kind of idea of reconstructing the Bible, which well-educated people do, they can't, they pick this up in the in the classroom, right, Mike? You heard this at Towson. Uh, so they come to the scriptures already screwed up with a scripture that has been absorbed and reconstructed inside their own frame of reference. So you've got to bust that frame of reference up and the first rupture occurs when you, you drop a piece on them that's so big their filter can't handle it. And don't be afraid to do that. The scripture said that God spoke from Mount Sinai. I think Moses, you know, I, I think God kind of gave Moses the idea and, and then Moses wrote it. That's not what the text says. The text says God spoke from Sinai in the Hebrew language and God wrote on those tablets. It wasn't Moses. Well, I, I, I just can't, can't go along with that. Well, then we have to pause and, and deal with that issue because I can't go any further with the gospel if I can't deal with the issue of revelation and God speaking, God's holy, God's righteous. So, preliminary to answering the question, what is a clear gospel presentation? I think you've got to clear the air to have a clear gospel presentation. And I think in our day and age, my impression is that you spend 90% of your time clearing the air and 10% of the time presenting the gospel. Because once the air is clear, and the categories are clear, that God is a holy God, that he's our creator, 
that in eternity I have to face him and I, he's, I have to be accountable to him and I've got a problem here because I'm going to meet him. Nobody's going to be holding my hand. The pastor isn't going to be there. My mother isn't going to be there. My wife isn't going to be there. My sons aren't going to be there. I'm going to be there. And it's going to be strictly between God and me. Now, when that starts to set in, now we can discuss the issue of, of our relationship. And then it gets into the sin of, of, of rejecting the solution. But you see, you can't even deal with the sin of rejection until we deal with the solution. And the solution to a holy God and a relationship with him has been confirmed over and over again in Scripture as necessary by blood atonement. God cannot arbitrarily forgive. On the basis of his nature, he has that basis. So all this theology is wrapped into that. And in those three points in John 16, you're, you're, you're seeing that at the crucial center of it in the sense that the sin, the ultimate sin, is brought out by a person's response to the gospel, right? If we show that Jesus Christ died for uh, is the atonement. He is the atonement. There's no getting to God except through him. Now, if I turn my back on that, if I rebel and reject that, what have I, in effect, done? I have said that somehow either God isn't there, or if the God of the scripture is there, then I can substitute for his work my work. And so it centers, Christ becomes a center. And I think that's the point in that text, is that the good gospel presentation focuses on the Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that you escape from dealing with miracles in the Old Testament or creation or the blood atonement and the rest of this because the Christ we're talking about is the Christ that's in that worldview. But the Holy Spirit emphasizes the importance of accepting or rejecting Jesus Christ. It's not a trivial issue. And the second thing that has to be emphasized, and, and a good gospel interpretation will emphasize the finished work of Jesus Christ and making that the, the whole thing so it doesn't become a psychological thing. Now, we can talk psychology and say there are psychological effects of the gospel, peace. You know, I accepted Christ and, and you know, it really straightened me out and I got off of drugs. And you hear that testimony, and that may be true. But the problem is that if somebody, Joe Snodgrass is sitting out there listening to this, and he hears, maybe he's struggling with drugs, okay? And so he hears this, and one or two things may happen if you're not careful. He may be thinking to himself, while you're talking, he's thinking, oh man, I, I couldn't do that. You know, I, I've struggled with my problem for the last 15 years. And it's, it, you know, it's like smoking, I can't give it up or something. I just I can't, you know, I'm just, I've tried diets, you know, whatever the thing is. And so, so all of a sudden their mind is sitting there going spinning wheels on this issue. It's not Christ. It's this peripheral issue. And, or the person saying, well, I think I can do that. That's the optimist. You know, an optimist and a pessimist. Pessimists say they can't do anything about it. They get discouraged. And the optimist says, oh, I think I can do that too. I'd like to do that. No, got the wrong idea. You don't do that. Because the focus is all horizontal. It's all me, 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 me. And my problems, my problems, my problems. And that's not what the Holy Spirit's convicting of in John 16. 
The Holy Spirit is drawing us out of ourselves to look at Him. And that's, it's got to be theocentric, Christocentric. And that is so hard to do. Because we live in a psychological, mystical age where everybody's thinking of this ghoul and mysticism. And you, I say that a clear gospel presentation, you will be very hard-pressed to give a clear gospel presentation today. I don't try to discourage you. I'm just trying to warn you that it takes a long time. Um, Mike, and, you and Laura work with young people. Don't you find this? Yeah, Mike's bringing up a point here. In our particular culture, in our particular hour of existence, there's, there's a speed, and, and it's brought about by television, video games, and everything else. Got to be quick. Got to do this. I got to do that. Everybody's so busy, 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 that the gospel is not a simple message. It's going to be a soundbite gospel. It can't happen that way. Yes, you can have cleverly designed Christian sound bites, maybe. You know, Larry Burkett has a cute ones on the radio every once in a while. But that's, those are only like the, the hook on the line. That's not actually gut into the fish's mouth yet. That's the lure. So you have to, you, you can use sound bite lures to lure someone to the gospel. And, but, but there comes that point where and, and sometimes, uh, frankly, Mike, you know, you get back to your question about what is a clear gospel. Sometimes it isn't clear, but the Holy Spirit makes it clear because I, I think that's true. I mean, I became a Christian in a very unclear gospel presentation. Um, but the point is that even if you were to give a clear presentation, the, the Satan has hold of people's minds. They're drifting. They've got other things. You're going in and out in the conscious level while you're giving the gospel presentation. But if enough gets in, if just enough gets in, five days from now, they could be driving down Bel Air Road and become a Christian just because something happens. The Holy Spirit works in that. So you, you, it's encouraging to know that's how the Holy Spirit works that we don't have to give a nice airtight presentation. We try to be good spokesmen. We try to be as clear as we can because we want to apply, get enough in there that the Holy Spirit can work with it. Because remember, the Holy Spirit depend, it doesn't depend, but the Holy Spirit has chosen to work through the church and through believers. That's why we have missions, missionaries. You know, the Holy Spirit can say, I call you, you know. I mean, he's powerful enough to do that. But why has he condescended to use us to be the conduits? Kind of almost like it's humiliating for him to have to do that. Uh, to work through us, creatures of clay. But we're supposed to be his spokesmen. And I think it behooves us as Christians to focus on who God is. You've got to get who the biblical God is. He loves, but he's also just. And he is not going to permit some arbitrary forgiveness. That's not the gospel. That's not the Bible. 
you've got to know what God is, who and what God is. And it may involve telling stories. You may have to tell the flood story. You may have to tell the Exodus story. You may have to tell miracles from Jesus. But you've got to tell enough of the stories so it clicks the God of the Scriptures. God speaks, He acts, He saves, and He judges. And you all know enough of the stories of the Bible, so you ought to be able to illustrate that with stories, if, if nothing else, just stories in the Bible. And then, of course, you, you move from God to the issue of sin, God's attribute versus our performance. And you don't have to, you can take comfort in the fact that we, every man knows God is there. Isn't that Romans 1? So you see, you're not introducing new information. What you're doing is reminding them of something that basically they already know and have suppressed. And it's very delicate to, to approach someone about something they've suppressed. And in my experience with, with gospel, in fact, it was my experience last night, that if you probe around, you'll find some, some incident that happened in their lives that will explain to you the suppression that's going on. In other words, there'll be some, some event, something that's happened to them, or a series of events that happened to them. Maybe it was a, a case they lost a baby. And the, the anger at God for that situation that has eaten them alive for the last 15 years. They've never forgotten. They've never forgiven God for that. Well, until you deal with that, you've got a problem. And so you just have to, Lord, give me wisdom. How do I handle this? How do I bring this to the surface? Because as long as they got that, that little hang-up, what are they doing to the gospel? Ram it down. Ram, I don't want to think about it. Don't want to think about it. Don't want to think about it. Going to suppress it. Going to bury it. And I don't want you messing with it. So that's what you're dealing with. So, so you've got to somehow work with that and, um, and even be, just be sensitive to the Lord in working with that. But... Those are the forces that you're working against. But the more of these events that you see from Scripture, I think the clearer the Gospel will become for you. So I can't offer... An, I mean, we all know the outline of a clear Gospel presentation, Mike. Uh, God is who He is. Man has a sin problem. And the answer to that is God's way of plan of salvation. And um, we know from church history the, where it got fuzzy with the Reformation, cleared it up with the, the righteousness, the source of righteousness. And um, we know that as an outline. It's just that in practice, with real people and real situations, it's almost personally unique. We could stand up here, I bet you tonight, and go through all of us in this group and give testimonies of how we became a Christian, there wouldn't be two people in this room that were led to Christ with the same message or the same circumstances. Right? Betcha. I'm not going to ask you to do that. I'm just saying that if we did, I think that's what we'd find. Um, yeah, George, and then we'll have to be a quick one and we'll have to go. to the intellectual authority and moral evaluation of the 
unbeliever unless God consents to create a place of believers And that's really what they're doing when, you know, and you've talked about that before, but I just thought that was interesting. Okay, well, our time is up, and next week we will be working through uh, a hard and difficult uh, series of, of analogies that the New Testament uses to uh, explain the session of Christ. Because once he went in the cloud, he, he dropped out of sight. So everything else is non-empirical. Everything else had to be inferred from the pages of the Old Testament. So three passages, Daniel 7, Psalm 2, and Psalm 110 we're coming up on. So if you look at those Psalms, look at the notes, and uh, we'll have some fun next week.